Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Geek Town Behind the Scenes podcast. I'm your host Dave Elliott and this week I'm chatting with Emmy winning and ADG award nominated production designer Adam Rowe. Adam is an art director and production designer for TV and stage who has worked across a huge array of eclectic projects, including most recently uh, Quantum Leap. He worked on Mr. Mayor, uh, CBS series Good Sam and our beloved The Good Place. One of his other more recent projects was the Netflix series Glamorous from Star Trek Discovery and Quantico producer Jordan Nardinio. Glamorous introduces us to makeup-obsessed and gender-nonconforming queer Marco, played by Miss Benny, as he's given the opportunity of a lifetime to work under makeup mogul Madeline Addison, played by Kim Cattrall, and the makeup empire she created. While navigating his job, Marco finds challenges in his new life and what it means to be queer. It's a beautiful little series. It's Netflix, so obviously was cancelled after one season, unfortunately, but it is well, well worth going to check out and watch. You can find Glamorous, the... Uh, whole first season is up there on Netflix right now. So in the interview, Adam talks about his work designing this really interesting environment for the uh, project. He also gives a few behind the scenes tips and tricks and little things that he did. And there's some interesting stuff about reusing sets in there as well, which I thought was quite fascinating and uh, stuff to look out for in the upcoming CBS series Matlock, which uh, stars Kathy Bates, which you will notice some of the stuff from Glamorous in Matlock as well, which is fascinating. He's also worked on other projects such as House, Criminal Minds, Dexter, Parks and Recreation, American Crime Story, Versailles. He worked a lot on uh, Rizzolian Isles as well, which was a great show. Uh, and he won his Emmy for Fox's live adaptation of the stage show Rent as well. If you want to hear more behind the scenes interviews, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast by searching for Geek Town Radio. This will give you our weekly Geek Town Radio podcast which brings you all the latest TV, film and gaming news. You can also go to the website at geektown.co.uk for daily news stories and all the latest UK and US TV premiere dates. I am away at the moment, which is why there isn't a regular Geek Town radio show. We will be back in a few weeks with that. But for now, here is the interview with production designer Adam Rowe. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. 
With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You might not remember this. We have actually spoken before. Was it for The Good Place? Yes, for The Good Place. But it was back in, it was in the before times, before pandemic. So everything's very hazy before that. It was uh, 2019, I think it was. So it was just before the full season dropped, I think. Oh, got uh, it. Okay, yeah. Like it's a little bit men in black whiteout for me on what was pre-COVID and post-COVID. But well, then I'm happy to see you again. Honestly, I'd rather record about that. Yes, I was kind of looking it up and going, I found to somebody about the good place before and then so i went back through the site and i was like oh it was adam okay <laughs> yeah that still is one of my like most dreamiest shows and i would love to work with that team again there just hasn't been a project that it would line up but to be able to work with Mike Shore in any capacity. And I know that, you know, the writer, some of the writers have broken out to do other things. One of them being the Pitch Perfect series, which I think was shot in either the UK or Germany in season one. I'm not sure. I know it's set in Germany. I just don't know if they shot it there. Right. But, you know, it's just, it's all in timing and like where those, you know, spheres line up. Yeah. I absolutely adored that show. They finished it so well with that final season because last time I spoke, like I said, it was just before the final season season had dropped it's one of those shows that's just very close to my heart just the way that it deals with the sort of subject of death really so beautifully it's such a wonderful show and the set design is just wonderfully bonkers and over the top and it's it just- me, I, i'm so happy too because it resonates with people so much still and you know for me it, i haven't seen a show on network television be that risky and in in some ways even wholesome and challenging like that network shows just don't tend to go down that pathway and that makes me sad because like network television seems like it's becoming uh, a second to what the streaming services are allowed to do. And I'm, you know, I, I kind of understand why that is, but I also don't like network television has so much power still. It just isn't mm-hmm. maybe harnessing it. Anyway, the point of why I'm saying that is that when I go to Universal Studios still now, yogurt, 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 you know, is not the sign has been gone because other people have used it for other things, but people still get excited and it's still resonating. And as a 17 year old or a 20 year old who wanted to work in the business to be able to have something that people like go to, like it's a statue of Liberty for big fans is, is it means a lot to me that people really love that. And there's still a sign on the back lot that I put there that, you know, says you're now entering the good place neighborhood, whatever the number was. I don't remember. <laughs> So it makes me happy that Universal still understands that people have a kinship with that world and they want to see it and they yeah. haven't erased So happy that's still there because I come back out to LA once or twice a year and, and I did actually see the set when it was up and they still had all the signage up because it, I think you just finished season four. Got a little bit of excitement just, just sort of seeing that. So I'm, I'm so happy that they've kept it up because I didn't, I was over earlier this year and I, I didn't do the studio this year. So yeah, I'm really happy. Done the Warner Brothers? I'm assuming you've done the Warner Brothers. I, I have done them all some of them multiple times. Yes. <laughs> 
Warner Brothers, I mean, Universal is its own thing because it's got all the rides and stuff. But Warner Brothers, I actually got teary when I sat through that welcome video because I was like, oh, they're really treating this with like the reverence that it deserves. Like you just don't know as an audience member what you're going to connect with. And they treated it that way, which I appreciated. Yeah, I love the, the yeah, the Universal one, like you say, it's his own thing. I always say if you're going to do the Universal tour, just pay and if you're going kind of, you know, with a few friends, just just pay a little extra go and do the vip tour because the the backlot tours a lot longer and they actually let you out of the trams to go and wander around so you can go and like stand in the middle of the back to the future square and all that sort of stuff but the warner brothers tour is really good fun and they've expanded that with they've got like a where they drop you off at the end now there's like a whole superhero sort of thing and they've they've got loads of costumes and all that sort of stuff in there my favorite studio is still paramount just because the connection to Lucille Ball and the old RKO studio and the fact that it was where they did Star Trek and it's one of those things that if you're thinking of what is a Hollywood studio what does it look like Paramount's the one that I think springs to mind you know because it's so iconic and it's the one that's can see the Hollywood sign from it and all that sort of stuff oh yeah no Um, definitely it has a and and it has its older vibe where Warner Brothers and Universal, especially now Universal is going through a major transformation. They've renumbered the stages. They've built new ones, all exciting. No complaints there. Warner Brothers has been kind of freshened and they they do a really good job of maintaining their environment. Paramount allows itself to be the heritage. I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the streets are narrower. The stages are older. The back lot, I, they just added one new addition to it. But, it, you know, comparatively speaking, it's a dime in a bucket because the back Backlot is, you know, been used for so many things. And you're right. There is a very palpable sense of nostalgia at Paramount uh, that is not great. It's also, you know, Universal Warner Brothers kind of have like a a shining light that is just like they've done so much. And it's not that Paramount hasn't, but Paramount's like, it's just chill. It's like that uncle that you go hang out with and drink beer with. They're just (laughs) like, we're okay. We've made a lot of great things. We know it. You can come use our lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just all the the history of it, and and uh, you know I love the stories, and particularly as I said, the Lucille Ball stuff is hilarious. Could you one section which is where Lucy's office is where, and there's like a garden section outside which is designed to look like her garden at home because she was getting a lot of criticism for the fact that you know she was now out, out working and this is terrible. How she can abandon her kids and be out to like being a studio boss? So she had this garden section designed outside her office that looked like her garden at home. So she could get photographers to come in take a few photos so it looked like she was playing with the kids in the garden and then carry on working <laughs> i didn't know that part that's great trivia i i think i know where you're talking about it too i just didn't know that's what that was that's cool yeah. the other thing is desi's office is on the sort of side of where that little square is and if you actually look there are cement marks down the wall and that's not where they've kind of done updating and stuff that is apparently because Desi was a well-known womanizer and Lucy had got sick of it at one point and he saw this little starlet come out of his office and she was like, right, that's it. So she bricked up the front door of his office and cemented it in. So he had to climb in through the window to get all this stuff out and you can still see the cement marks on the door where she did it. That's great. I didn't know that either. I like that. I mean, is that passive aggressive that you're not going to have a conversation? You're just going to cement in your... <laughs> 
cement in the door. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's there's lots of good stories. I mean, Lucille Ball is such an icon, and I did the more stories you hear about the better. But yeah, it's it's there's there's some great things from that lot. We've got incredibly sidetracked. We should probably talk about your work and your show. <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying chatting. Yeah, no, I, just, I I um I like talking about glamorous. It was it it didn't. I don't know if it performed as well as people expected or thought. But what is interesting about this show versus shows that I have done before, except for maybe The Good Place, it started airing at the end of June. And initially I was getting text messages and Facebook messages and even TikTok messages and Instagram from different people I either knew or didn't know who started watching it and kind of gravitating towards it and really engaged in it. That population, I think, is small, but it's the most vocal of a show I've ever done. I've never had as much feedback and inquiry and interest. A lot of people really enjoyed it, it seems. Whereas sometimes I'll work on a show and people will have negative commentary or they'll, you know, Twitter hate or they'll, who knows what. Mm. But um, the show seemed to really have its own interesting voice for people that I was, I didn't expect. I thought people would enjoy it. Um, Like I, when I first auditioned, not auditioned, I guess I did audition, but when I first pitched the set to the CBS producers, I described it as like really decadent dessert. Like, I don't know if you remember those dessert displays that were like towers and they had a mirror yeah. cup and like jello and cake. And, you know, I, that was in a diner where I grew up in Ottawa, Illinois. And that's kind of how I looked at this show that it was, it had substance of course, and it had meaning, but it was really about rich chocolate dessert, you know, and you can have a great time eating it and then you can move on with your day. And that was kind of how I approached the show and thought about the show. And then to have people really say, wow, you know, this part really taught me something, or I didn't know this about somebody who was identifying as they like, I found that interesting that there was this kind of uh, fluff to the show, but yet it provided a dialogue for people if people watched it or got all the way through it. Because there was also a lot of commentary that people thought the writing, you know, didn't challenge it enough or it was too superficial. But I think there was a slow burn there that the the lessons kind of come towards the end if mm-hmm. you give it a chance. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said it's a, it's a show that I wouldn't necessarily have picked up until I knew I was going to talk to you because it's just when you read the description of it, you know, it's it's a young lad that goes into the makeup industry but i've absolutely love it it's just so wonderful it's joyously fun and it sometimes happens when i'm interviewing people of like i end up sort of thinking oh well i'll go and watch a few episodes of this and get completely hooked on something and glamorous is one of those shows it's really really fun and the casting's really nice it looks lovely it does say something kind of interesting like you say it's something that you don't often see on network TV and you get bits of it on the streaming services but I think it's it, it's an interesting kind of take because it is there are a lot of sort of LGBTQ characters on that show it is very much led by that I think throughout so oh, yeah it's a super super gay show and like <laughs> people obviously acknowledge that and recognize that right away but what I liked about it you know from a business standpoint is that you know you can look for LGBTQ content on almost any streaming service and this is not me putting them down, but they tend to have often lower production value. And then there's the standout ones that everyone knows, like Brokeback Mountain, or what was the one that was set in Italy with Chalamet? I can't remember the name of it. Oh my God, mm. I probably just lost some like gay points there, but you know, 
certain ones that kind of bubble up that get a lot of attention. There's uh, red, white, and royal blue coming out, but it's rare that they get support on all levels. And the thing mm-hmm. that I was so proud of that Netflix did or CBS Studios did is they didn't treat it any differently. They treated it like any show and the production value, I think, is it really holds the show up from the yeah. costume standpoint, the prop standpoint, the sound, the editing, the DPs were really fantastic. The lighting was really good. Like you, you can't say anything about it not being on par or equal. And I know that sounds silly, but as a gay person watching entertainment and people trying to be like, let's make things equal. That's something that I'm paying attention to. And mm-hmm. so I was really happy that Netflix said, let's make a show or CBS said, let's make a show and let's do it in a time when transgender is getting such negative press, if you call it that in the United States and potentially globally. And they went for it and they did it. And they did a a, a show that gave something digestible to people. And it does look beautiful. I'm very, very proud of that. I mean, the driving force behind one of the reasons why it looks as pretty as it does is it was a show about makeup and glamour and it's called glamorous. So that's part one, but part two, I was designing this just post COVID. And so I was trying to lure audiences back into work and that you could believe that these 20 something year olds weren't wanting to work at home. Yeah. Cause I just, the story doesn't have merit. If everybody be like, well, I just be working at home and doing this on zoom, yeah. you know, like you do miss out on the water cooler or bathroom moments when you work at home and you don't have that kind of traditional TV gossip that happens in the workplace. If everyone's, you know, chatting online, it's different when you can surprise someone in the bathroom, so to speak. Yeah. In terms of the the sets that you were putting together and what you were putting together for this, where did you actually shoot it? Which studio was it? It was in Toronto, actually. Oh, it okay. was, uh, it's an interesting story. I'll, I'll make it brief because I, I do like to tell people this because not a lot of people know that you know, CBS uh, initially did a pilot called Good Sam and Good Sam was predominantly supposed to be a medical drama shot in partial hospital. And then COVID happened. So we ended up building a lot, a lot of scenery in a warehouse that we turned into sound stages in uh, Mississauga. And, you know, it wasn't actually in Toronto, it was outside of Toronto quite a ways. And then that series did, you know, didn't make it past season one. And so Frank Syracuse, who is a producer in Toronto was like, are you, could you turn this into something else? And so they came to me very shortly after Good Sam was ending and said, you know, what about a makeup headquarters in New York? And so that set is a changeover from Good Sam. And then (laughs) after season one of Glamorous, CBS Studios said, hey, we have a pilot Matlock. Could we do it again? So I have used that set three ways now. And, you know, eager eyes of audience members are going to are going to notice that the staircase pretty much is the part that stays the same in all three. And I love that. Like, yes, I want to design new worlds, of course. But like the reality is you're always going to use stock scenery, uh, no matter how high up you get. And it was fun to, to use one set three ways. And I think it turned out spectacular and glamorous. You would never know that it used to be a hospital. No, I mean, I would never have guess that because i mean i i looked on you you know i knew you worked on good sam but i i didn't re- realize that that was going to be the same set as well in terms of uh what you are doing just talk me through some of the sets because i'm assuming most of 
the shooting for this was standing sets that you're building rather than location stuff that yeah, we, you're dressing. We built a lot. I mean, a tremendous amount for Glamorous. That's something I'm very proud of. Um, it did have kind of a stage focus. Like it went out into the world, especially the episode where we go to Provincetown. But they, this is a lot to say here, but we knew from the beginning because all 10 scripts were written, which is the first time I've ever had that happen. Oh, wow. So as a designer, I was actually able to know where to focus my time, energy, and of course, a budget where the pretty stuff should be. And we knew we were in the office a lot. We knew we were in Madeline's office a lot. So I knew I was working with the bones of a hospital. So I firstly had to shed that and give the show its own signature and the, its own identity, because I still come from a world of channel surfing, even though I know that's not a thing for most any yeah. younger generation. But like, I still want to design with something that catches an audience. So they're like, oh, what is this? Not mm -hmm. just because, and you know, an actor's in it, but because of the world that they're in. And so making a signature for it was part one. And that really started to happen when Kim Cattrall was cast. I mean, I already had an idea because I, I had looked up L'Oreal and all these other makeup companies like Chanel and had inspiration of what they look like. NYX was another really big one that I was referencing. I knew that I wanted to be younger and hipper because we were placing it in Hudson Yards in New York City, which is a brand new you know development. So I had all these kind of design features that were kind of dictated by the pragmatics or scripted or money, et cetera. But then when Kim came, I was like, oh, I definitely have to include the 80s glam because that's who she came from, not only as the performer, but as Madeline, the backstory yeah. of somebody who was in fashion. And so the black, white, silver mirror and some brass comes from my interpretation of fashion and the runway. And so that becomes the baseline for everything. And then popping in hot color and making the scenery outrageous, like it is in the kitchen, that whole blue scene and the wallpaper in the bathroom. Those are all coming from me trying to kind of make sure that we're sticking to a tone that is a bit send up, a bit fantasy. You know, Marco is stepping into the Wizard of Oz situation here. He's dreamed of this. He's getting to meet a supermodel. I could make the set look a little bit more realistic, of course, but why go that route when you're selling something that's fabulous or literally glamorous? So those are that's kind of the long meandering way to describe how I kind of operated and made some of the decisions that I made, always knowing that Marco was a fish out of water to a certain degree, who then becomes more comfortable in this world. And there's mirrors in every set because eventually someone's going to check their makeup. And, <laughs> and you know, that ends, that gives a DP sometimes a nightmare, but something to work with because then you can always reflect and give depth and glare and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So essentially it's always trying to look like a real makeup facility with the volume kind of turned up to 11 not to use a reference from <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, i i was yeah. perfectly good reference on the flip side of the sort of the glamorous offices you've also got marco's room as well which that must have been an interesting one to sort of try and approach because you're he's this kid that works on this makeup counter when you first meet him but he's trying to get into sort of being an influencer and doing these videos so what sort of things were you doing for that so because i knew that the episode pilot was starting in Marco's bedroom. I knew that he was 20 something over 21 because he drinks. I knew that he probably grew up in this house with his mom without his father. We know that from the story. And I assumed that they've been there a long time. Plus Jordan, the showrunner told me he wants authenticity. He wants it to feel realistic, but I'm also playing with an audience at home's memory or thoughts of what a child's room on television looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, 
oftentimes children rooms, I don't want to call Marco a child, but that's where I was starting from. You know, he's also somebody who probably spends a lot of time in his room privately putting on makeup, making YouTube videos, making TikTok videos. So like all of a sudden I have a square root of what is the room? You know, it's his studio. It's his makeup lab. He's got his own bathroom because his mom gave him one. We, We learned that from the script. So those are the architecture of the space. And then knowing that it's set in New Jersey, I tried to make it realistic and scale, but then shootable for a company of 25 to 30 people to get in and out of there. <laughs> yeah. um, and then just layers. The set decorator did a great job. The set deck team did a great job of layering things and finding things that would be at thrift stores as opposed to all Ikea furniture, for instance. And, you know, you I think when you watch it, you can see that there's layers of different maybe YouTube videos that he was making. There's a whole bunch of images stuck to the wall or there's high heels here and there and there's equipment like ring lights. And so all of that to me is the starting point for the show. It's an invitation into a world that hopefully I'm, you know, kind of cunningly bringing the audience into. And then we completely counterpoint to that in the organized, clean, glossy, slick world of the glamorous offices. So in the first 30 minutes of the show, you have, you know, basically day and night or however you want to look at it. You have the opposite ends. You have someone's young bedroom who's and where he's going is, you know, downtown Manhattan to this fancy place. And then from that, I, you know, designed Parker's condo. He's kind of the villain in the show, if depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. So his older environment, a boxier environment, he had a lot of money. And then you also have the gay bar, the Hinkle room. So I kind of had these forces that were all working together or working against each other. So over the course of 10 hours of television, the audience isn't getting fatigue. Um, having the luxury of knowing that all those sets were going to be built, including Madeline's townhouse at the beginning was really fun as a designer because I basically kind of had my palette and I knew what my range was. Obviously there could be surprises that came along the way or actors needs, which never really happened. No actor ever came to me and said, Oh, I want my space to be a certain way. Miss Benny was very open and very kind. The actress who played Marco's mom didn't have any notes about her living space. Kim Cottrell only had a few notes about her office. So it was really from a designer standpoint, it was pretty much a dream when it comes to that. Everybody kind of let me in the art department and set deck team you know, do what we would like and tell the story how we wanted to. Yeah, I, I was wondering about Miss Benny and because interestingly, I mean, her background is somewhat similar to Marco's in that, you know, she, she was making YouTube videos and then sort of hit it big. I wondered whether she had had any sort of input or had said anything about sort of, you know, the room and stuff. Where, you Not know, really. I mean, the one thing I want to point out about Miss Benny is that everybody told me after the first couple of days of filming we started in Marco's bedroom, how electric Miss Benny was and how her, you know, the personality was shining through and how good Marco was going to be. And that is a comment that I've heard from people, even people I don't know that they've, you know, enjoyed that person's performance, but from a designer, knowing that this performer's first major role, they, you know, they were a YouTube star. They had a couple of music videos and here they are 
in their first set as, you know, acting opposite Kim Cattrall, that's that, that would make me nervous. <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure that the, the room that they were starting in was comfortable. And so I put that into the equation of design. Like, how do I make sure this place is theirs? And it was actually the set decorator, Rosalie Board, who, you know, watched some of Miss Benny's YouTube videos and tried to incorporate some of that style and what that, you know, what's going on in those videos <laughs> into that space. That's why the bathroom is a little bit, I mean, it's, it had wallpaper, but it's pretty basic and boring. And then, you know, there's just layers and layers of makeup and powder. And, you know, you don't really see that so much in the show. I mean, you kind of do, but the camera moves so quickly, generally speaking in the pilot, that was Todd, our pilot director's energy for the show. If you notice in the first two episodes, the camera's kind of all over the place, beautifully so. And then it kind of calms down as the season continues, just based on probably speed of which they had to do it. I don't really know why they changed that, but Anyway, that was a long way of saying that I just wanted Miss Benny to be comfortable. But as far as I know, they never had any notes other than just excited to be there. And they gave a great performance throughout the whole season. Yeah, I mean, Miss Benny, uh, given, as you say, this is her first sort of major performance, it is brilliant. I mean, I would love to see them go on and do other things after this because just came across so, so well. I'd like to say going up against Kim Cattrall, who's a seasoned acting star. Well, and all that cast, really, I mean, when you work in at least the way that I have run an art department or worked as a production designer, I'm not on set very much because nine times out of 10, I don't want to glorify the position in certain ways, but we're a little bit like pioneers we're out scouting we're out trying to solve problems we're out planning the next episode so the episode that's shooting is often behind us and you know we're obviously going to set and attending to any changes or anything that needs to happen but we're always looking forward because we're one step ahead and so when the cast is on stage it's not something I hear that often, whether they like, you almost always hear if they don't like something, that's the first thing. <laughs> tell you. But when they like something, you don't hear much about it. And I, I was really impressed with how comfortable Miss Benny became as a leader and how comfortable Kim and the cast in general were. And then to watch the show and see how great, I mean, Venetia was really, really good. And I, it's not that I didn't think they would be, I just didn't know how much life they would bring to the script. And I was definitely, a Chad fan because I loved his comic timing and just his personality. He obviously knows how to use his charisma. And I found that the cast had a nice diversity, not just in who they were, but like in how they portrayed them. Even Ben, you feel for him generally and rightfully so towards the end. I mean, Marco didn't treat him that well. And you get a little, I did, I got touched that, you know, Ben put his heart on his sleeve and he got, he didn't, you know, he got taken advantage. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that that's the interesting for me is as somebody who isn't a member of that community, but what was quite nice to see though, was there was a sort of, full range of not just a stereotypical there is a danger of having stereotypical sorts of representation in this sort of thing and there is such a range of just people with different personalities and uh, you know you know what i mean there's that marco's kind of very out there but then you've got ben who isn't and you've got chad who's kind of this sort of butch guy it's just a really interesting mix to me yeah i like that it, it's semi it's to me it normalized in certain ways i yeah. mean there's 
certainly, you know, not to pick on Jack and Will and Grace, but like that's a certain kind of character uh, that played and we're used to seeing. And you really only see that kind of gay in the show a little bit. But the rest of the show, you know, shows a different range of what it is to be almost normal, if I can even say that, because it it almost doesn't become a thing. I would say that Benicia's relationship is just a relationship, you know, her and are just a relationship. There's nothing about it that has anything to do with sexual identity. And I liked that as a, you know, as a gay person for any gay audience member, I hope that it shows that it's just normal, you know, and the yes. more it's normalized, the more it's not a thing that has to be special anymore or yeah. different. I really like the way that it's just portrayed across the characters. I, I think you do a really wonderful job with that on that show. It's really lovely. Yeah. And then to sort of to answer your question, to go back to it. So a lot was built. We built a tremendous amount and we were always building. I don't think we ever really stopped, but we did go into downtown Toronto and we used a other locations like the hotel lobby, for instance, in Provincetown. And we use the same building lobby as the TV show Suits. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, Bay Adelaide Center in Toronto. That's a popular one. Interestingly enough, we almost used it again on Matlock, but it was like, okay, we can't just keep <laughs> things over and over again. Because like, like any city, there's certain things that are the same and identifiable and yeah. audiences smart enough now that they're going to be like, wait a minute, you know, that, I've seen that before. Anyway, so we built a lot and it was very enjoyable to be building. And I like using the city of Toronto now. I've done it for four shows. So I understand how the city, you know, I understand that it can change, of course, but like I felt comfortable there after being there as long as I did. Yeah. Do you want to talk about just some of the other bits and pieces, things that stick out for you, maybe in the sets for the show? Were there a particular favorite one that you... The first thing I'd like to just mention, because it was one of my favorite parts to work on, is that there's this element of fantasy that kind of got, that kind of happens in either the second or third episode. I think it's the third episode where uh, Marco's talking about the fantasy of a boyfriend and you see a carnival scene, you see a mugging scene and you see a diner scene. And then you kind of fast forward later in the episode, there's this kind of like almost game show moment where McKinley has to learn about pride. There there was those two moments in the series that kind of almost leaned into hyper-realism or fantasy. Mm. I, as a designer and as a style for the show, wished we pushed a little bit further into that. But I did really enjoy that designing those moments. They originally were supposed to be realistic. We were supposed to go to an alley and have like a gangster scene in a carnival which you know could have happened i suppose we filmed in the summertime so there could have been a real carnival we could have gone to but logistically it just wasn't worth it for these 20 second 30 second moments and i think they came across really cool in the show so i i really enjoyed those i especially loved mckinley's you know learning about pride and then going down the slide and it's just kind of absurd and weird it actually comes from a billy on the street moment with rachel dretch uh that was what jordan showed me as like hey this is the kind of thing we're, we're going for. And to be honest with you, I never quite understood it, but I just really enjoyed designing it and getting an opportunity to be a bit wacky, almost borderline Pee Wee's Playhouse a little bit because it was just <laughs> silly. Um, the other thing that was really hard, but I loved, loved, loved doing is that I have a little bit of still print advertising background. I worked uh, with Christina Aguilera on her pregnancy photo. I worked for Hillshire Farms, which is lunch meat. I worked for Febreze, uh, you know, which is the spray to make things smell good. So I have this background in magazine ads. And so when I knew that I was going to be working on faking 
glamorous by Madeline as a brand, I got to tap into those style guides and those uh, codes is what they call it in the advertising world sometimes. Like what are the rules of glamorous by Madeline and how do we stick to those? And we knew that we wanted to be diverse given the show. We knew that we wanted to have a classic look. We knew that um, we had to fit in with Chanel and Dior and all these other really famous heritage, I would call them brands. Mm -hmm. I didn't want glamorous by Madeline to come into the scene and look new because it's supposed to have been around since, you know, the 2000s or whenever we decided that Madeline started this business. Yeah, they talk about the time. I don't remember. So faking that quickly was something that I was really excited about. And then to continuously be creating advertisement campaigns, like we had to create four or five different pride advertising campaigns, which the audience at home doesn't really see all of that much, but we didn't know that. So we were creating all these different ad campaigns. You know, what the art department is suffering through in the script, we as the art department were suffering through in real life because we were making all those campaigns and we were working with Priyanka, the drag queens that were in the show to kind of create all these backstories of all these thrown out campaigns. I didn't know that Kim Cattrall wouldn't want to see them. I didn't know that the director wouldn't want to see them and you see them to a certain degree but and then on top of it you have to create an advertisement campaign that is the last one and the you can't the audience at home can't see what it is until the big reveal so like working with the director who has to then photograph that but not give it away was really fun i mean that's (laughs) tricky and i think we pulled it all off i was really really pleased with the final reveal with kim cattrall in the middle and the three drag queens around her um we ended up compositing that photo we hired a fantastic photographer But by the time you get all the photographs, certain hair sheen, certain look, certain expression, we are selling a luxury brand. So the photography has to be fantastic. And I was happy that we got to do all that uh, as opposed to some other shows I could work on. They could be like, oh, no, that's not the focus. Let's let's look away from it or let's do a close up or let's shy away from it. But the team led by Jordan didn't want to do that. And I was very happy to rise to that challenge. And I think we delivered a product that you could believe could be on billboards across America. You know, I was really about that yeah do you forget that like every time you see something like like that particularly when you're doing this sort of meta thing of there is an art department on screen so somebody has had to create the stuff that the actors are doing <laughs> yeah you forget that get, there's we, layers the show got compared a lot to uh, emily in paris along the way like that right. was something that kept coming up and i had a moment on glamour so it was like oh the art department at emily in paris is working really hard because she's always creating some kind of ad campaign or something like that and they do a great job of course but like it is interesting how the television art department you know it's six seven people sometimes a little bit more but not many more and we're prepping in 10 days eight days that's a lot where when you think about luxury brand they do things for three months or two months you know they they obviously go through a lot more testing and stuff like that but that luxury brand identity is millions of dollars and sometimes (laughs) the logo and so we I, you know, faking that was a daunting task. Then you fold into it, having to fake makeup, which, you know, takes a lot of effort. Thank God there's a company called Pinnacle in Toronto that does makeup lines for wedding, uh, like people who want to do wedding makeup. So we just rebranded their makeup to be 
glamorous by Madeline and it looks sophisticated enough to, to get along. And then when we had to make the um, organic palette, you know, it was the um, prop master, Danielle, who came up with the great ideas of how we were going to do it. And there's a lot of really fun things that happened in the show Glamorous that the audience absolutely is taking for granted. And there's a bunch of people behind the scenes almost hyperventilating to try and make <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It is one of those things that, um, which I think is a, is a sign of a, a, a good show. Is you, you know, you get completely lost in the story and it all seems to be in place. And it's only after you go back and think about it going, hang on, somebody had to sit and do all of that to get to that point. Yeah. And generally, you don't do it once. You do, Like, I must have rendered the part where McKinley goes through the obstacle course, for lack of a better word. I rendered that so many different times, different budgets, different styles, different looks, different research boards, the mural that's on the staircase. That's Kim Cottrell's face. We went through many, many iterations. There's even, there was hand painted ones underneath the one that we finally used. You know, it's, it, you never get it right on the first time. And that is something that I think a lot of younger production designers, art directors, assistant art directors, set designers, graphic artists kind of learn as you go is that you kind of have this illusion that once you're professional, you'll kind of get it right. I, I will admit I had that happen too. And it's not an accusation. It's not a personal attack. It's just you're trying to be a jam band and sometimes you don't get it right or you have to take somebody else's opinion as the lead as opposed to what you think is right. Mm -hmm. And um, this show really taught me how to kind of balance all the different voices and do it quickly because it was still all happening very fast. Yeah, I mean, that that is the other thing. Like you say, is, you know, the turnaround for these sort of things can be astronomically tight sometimes. And I mean, I know it varies from show to show, particularly sort of networks and streamings have got different timings and stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, I know you're a Star Trek fan, like in Toronto, Star Trek was filming while while we were there and you hear rumors that they have 74 carpenters working, you know, 12 hour days, 16 hour days, seven days a week. They don't get days off and you have huge art departments and all the CGI. And that idea sounds so awesome to me that you're world building. But the amount of anxiety, like there's a lot there. Plus, you're dealing with an audience base who's incredibly critical. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what the hierarchy is, but I'm pretty sure Star Trek fans, Harry Potter fans, Star Wars fans. I mean, these are people who are dedicated to the IP. And if you mess up, they're going to be on you to a certain degree, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I've yeah. never. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, certainly with something like Star Trek, when you've got something which has got a history that goes back to the 60s and there's something like 5,000 hours of Star Star Trek out there now and, and if you produce something as a production designer that is contradicting something that happened back five seasons ago in a different show but he's part of the same universe there has to be a reason for doing that so, yeah. so you know otherwise some fan somewhere I, I'm less concerned but sometimes some fan somewhere will like be up on the internet going why isn't that correct you know so. yeah so like you hear about that you know that there's you know, people ask me like oh, what would you like to do, you know, in your future career? Yes, I would love to be part of a, what I would consider mega world building in the Marvel universe, or the Star Wars universe, or, or some new IP that hasn't even been made yet. But being in on the ground floor is the part that sounds the most exciting to me to be able to create signatures. I mean, People who made the first Star Wars had no idea no. that they'd be using the same language, the same Star Trooper uniform, you know, or variations on a theme. I just find that so amazing. It kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier that like you just don't know what an audience is going to latch on to. You had 
nobody knew that yogurt, yogurt, yogurt was going to be something in, in, in the good place that people would have, you know, a heart attack to see. I don't know if anything in glamorous came out of that. Like who knows what fans sought after or want or, or any show that I've worked on for that matter. Um, and that's part of the intoxicating joy of working in television for me is that you just don't know how you're going to connect to someone. You can force it. You can try and mm -hmm. make a thing, but you you just don't know. Anyway, that was yeah. kind of a diet. No, it, it is difficult. I mean, it's it's like when, you know, memes of stuff pop up on the internet. You never know exactly what's going to land and what somebody is going to pick up at, out of that. As I say, with this show, it's going to be interesting to see whether, I mean, because we don't know whether it's it's coming back for another season yet or not. I, I'm assuming you've not. Yeah, no, we don't know. And I, I'm intrigued for sure. I, I thought the way that it ended was cliffhangery enough that mm -hmm. like you don't know if Madeline, you know, will rescue the company or whatever. There's a lot there. You know, what will Chad do? Will he become, you know, the there's a lot of story there that's wonderfully left undone. And of course, I want to see it go because what I have learned is that, you know, season two, season three, that's when fans start to pick up speed. You know, you generally don't often get the fans in the first season. I thought Severance was amazing season one, and I don't understand why it didn't get nominated for an Emmy, but mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. Like it just kind of, it needs sometimes things take a while to, you know, for audiences to catch on. Um, I use Severance as an example because the production design in that is outrageously awesome. Yes. It's so interesting and fun. And, you know, every image is so curated and intense. It almost exhausts you in a certain way. And and to, to not have it get acknowledgement, I was it's kind of that symptom where seasons two and three are when shows catch on, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, unless they're, you know, zeitgeisted so appropriately that people just love, I don't even know if people love game of Thrones season one, you know, like sometimes they take a little bit of time. So having season two happen of glamorous, I think would be good, but I will admit it's a very nice 10 hours of television that mm -hmm. just kind of contained and you feel good about watching it. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's very true. I mean, I hope it comes back. We've been talking on the main show about um, we're very critical of how Netflix renews its shows because it seems that it just has a big algorithm that kind of looks at numbers and, and gives a sort of Romanesque gladiatorial thumb up or thumb down sometimes. But I love the way you just said that because as a worker in the business, it does feel that way. And I have found in the times that I've so I've been in the business now since two thousand six and I get more and more nervous every year and you'd think it would go the other way around that I would get more and more comfortable and more and more confident but I'm seeing disposable streaming like they mm -hmm. they invest something and you think you have a way to plan as a worker who would be like okay maybe I can count on season two but it just doesn't exist anymore. And it's so sad. I mean, Criminal Minds was the last show that I worked on that I was like, oh, this show is coming back. I can plan my life. I can take a vacation. That hasn't been happening. Even Rizzoli and Isles went down when it was getting really great. What at that time in 2016, I think it was getting like four or five million views uh, an episode. And they and that got and it got, you know, I don't actually know if it got canceled or Angie Harmon and Sasha Alexander decided not to come back. I don't really know. But it's really weird to me why they cancel something. So yeah. comparing it to 
gladiator it feels that way yeah and i mean netflix unfortunately i think is one of the worst offenders at it you know because apple are incredibly good at renewing things if they're working or even if they like it and they will actually renew them before the first episode's even gone out on air the, you know internally they'll go we like this we think it'll land then amazon are the same netflix it feels like it's all controlled by a giant computer algorithm and there is no human interaction in it and as a viewer that's how it comes across and the problem with that is it's getting a reputation for cancelling shows after one season that people like and it may be a small group of people but they're still cancelling those shows and not giving them the opportunity to grow. I mean, you know, it's said many times, something like Seinfeld wouldn't have got past one season these days. Oh, uh, I agree 100%. So many shows now. Yeah. Um, and the problem is Netflix is now getting a reputation for that. So you're at a point where people are not watching first seasons of Netflix shows. They're going, oh, I'll wait and see if it's renewed first. But because of that, less people are watching it, which means that shows aren't getting renewed because less people are watching it because they're worried that they're going to get cancelled so they end up getting cancelled because of the fact that people aren't watching it because they're worried about it getting cancelled so yeah i mean i don't i don't know if this relates or not too but there is something interesting about what you're saying that like you know amazon and apple making television is not their focus in fact it almost feels like they're like well the cool kids are doing it we'll do it too yeah i mean i'm not a business person but that is what netflix's business is and so they have far more pressure on making a dedicated audience base and i will tell you being truthful, Netflix is going to be, is the first, well, Hulu's the first to go for me and Netflix is the second to go. I'm going to probably hang on to Amazon mostly because it's tied into, you know, Amazon music and shipping and all that, mm -hmm. which was smart on their part. Yeah. They don't have as much to lose. Whereas Netflix, I, I do feel like they're kind of at a bit of a crossroad that they, they have a lot of content that people don't watch. I genuinely believe that. I mean, yeah. I, I wish here's an idea for someone, please. Netflix knows exactly what I like. So why can't I just hit play and it just plays something it's already playing. Like, why isn't perpetually big fat Greek wedding just playing on Netflix? So I can just <laughs> <play it on? laughs> you know, it knows that I want to watch that. Why on earth do I have to hunt for something? The hunt is the part that exhausts me. Well, yeah. And I mean, that, that is the other problem is they, they have a sort of the, their, their commissioning policy seems to be throw enough mud at the wall and see what sticks sometimes like the amount of slightly different YA supernatural dramas that they've made over the past three years is insane. And the problem is not all of those are going to get recommissioned because they just can't all survive. And it's things like that that is getting it an incredible... Like, they cancelled Lock and Key, I think it was. God, that was such a beautiful show. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Gorgeous show. Um, was it Lock and Key? Yeah, there was Lock and Key. There was an, uh, there's been a couple of them. And yet, they're keeping that Lord of the Rings series that was so terrible. I don't know if you're talking about the same... Oh, that on, yeah, that, that, yeah um, that's that's on Prime, the, the Lord of the Rings series. Yeah. The reason that Amazon are keeping Lord of the Rings is because they had to order it for two seasons to get the licensing in the first place oh, so okay. uh, it was part of the agreement with the estate was there was going to be at least two seasons of it they get um, twice as bad then yeah <laughs> so I, I mean i mind the first season of it but i if you're a talking like fan and a purist certainly i was watching it going i don't mind this but it's gonna really upset a bunch of people <laughs> so and um, i guess what i i suffer from and it you know it maybe isn't the show's fault but like when i like something i just want to like that mm -hmm. you know it's 
like uh, the best example is, I know this is stupid, but The Sound of Music is almost a perfect movie to me. It's a Wonderful Life is almost a perfect movie to me. Don't remake them. Let them be the yeah. pure, beautiful they are and find a new thing. So that's why it was like, there are new fantasy stories out there. There can be new Lord of the Ringsian things. Let's just make something new that we can get excited about. That's where I was frustrated. Yeah. And so I was like, I felt like I was watching a repeat, you know, or, or, <laughs> or you know, anyway. Yeah, there's a million and one. I mean, if you're not doing it like as a completely original story, there's a million and one sci-fi books out there that you can adapt. I mean, you know, there's there's so many things. I'd say overall, out of all the streaming services, Apple is the one that has absolutely been nailing it just across the board they very much go for quality over quantity and just the amount of well put together solid well written beautifully designed shows on that service compared to all the others I, I think is pretty outstanding you know they've yeah they've I would agree it. with you they're well supported it's they have a philosophy I think that to me is HBO they don't let things fail you know they support them they give them the time I don't know if I'm not an HBO Max subscriber but I know a lot of people are and, and I, I, I hear a lot of positive things things that are coming out on HBO Max, but Apple does have very beautiful things to look at and incredible performances. And their their television has purpose sometimes. You know, you feel like you're watching something that's making you think or challenging you. And I I love that there are producers out there that are making those choices to be daring, and especially at a time where audiences are so, so hypercritical. Yeah, I very much agree with that. They're making very interesting choices. Like, I'm not sure where else something like Severance would have worked, you know? <laughs> so uh, shows like that, I think Foundation, I think is a brilliant, brilliant show. They've just been doing such a good job with that couple of other things you worked on as well you mentioned the matlock pilot that you shot Who, uh, who's the lead in that it was kathy bates it's kathy just, bates yes that's it yeah so exciting yeah no i'm i'm very very excited for audiences to see the first episode i think they're going to be in for a, a really fun ride she's obviously an incredible icon i had a great time working with her she's so polite and kind a great leader i have nothing but positive and hopeful things for the series i'd like to get to making it <laughs> <laughs> the writer's obviously paused all that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Matlock is my next project and I'm very excited to be on it. I will admit I'm not a big fan of the reboots. Like I just am not. It's it's a, It feels like it goes against my original content brain. Like I just, I don't want everything to be new, but like we don't need to keep harvesting IPs and squeezing every last drop out of them. But I will say that that particular one, Matlock is treating the reboot very differently. Once you see it, you'll understand that it's not a continuation of a story. It's a brand new story. And I like the way they address it. The use of Matlock is in the YouTube trailer. You can understand, you know, how it's being used from that. So yeah, I'm excited to maybe be part of a reboot that is more of a shaking hands with its predecessor, not rebooting something. Yeah. When they came out and I was like, oh, they're doing Matlock. Oh, but it's Kathy Bates. And it sounds like they're doing something interesting with it. So yeah. You did a bit of work on Quantum Leap as well, talking about sort of oh, yeah. reboots and continuation stuff. I, and I, what I do like about that one is that is a, quite a clever sort of reboot slash continuation. So it leaves all the original history intact, but it's somebody else going through the sort of Quantum Leap process. I forgot. Yeah, I looked on your website that you had done that. I can talk a lot about Quantum Leap. I really enjoyed being on the project from a design standpoint and from a creation. All that part was really fun. 
I really love that they allow him to jump to any timeline. But yeah. I will say one thing that I was intrigued with is that they're not, I mean, they're I mean, it is a network show, but they're not jumping into situations where there could be social commentary on living today. Like, you know, there there have been network shows that what West Wing is a perfect example of one that allows you to think about what's happening today. And Quantum Leap is more, I guess, an action, you know, series. It's yeah. not really challenge you too much, but it does have that potential. And I do wish they would use it. Mm. Um, the episode that was close to the end of the season where they're jumping in multiple timelines, you know, inside the facility was very cool. I thought that was a really interesting episode where you basically had three timelines. It's a really interesting use of time travel in that one. Um, the battleship was really fun to work on. That was filmed at the USS Iowa in Long Beach for the most part, um, which is a you know ship that's been around a long time. So to be a you know an interesting you know a tourist for lack of a better word to get inside the battleship and to be able to go to all the different levels was awesome. And then of course to film a really cool episode on it was was great. Yeah, I was a huge fan of the original show. And from your side of things, it must have been really fun just working on it because of the fact that you know you are jumping through these time periods so you know you're doing like you know 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever it is one time and then you're kind of going to 80s and then you're the wild west and then you so yeah yeah one thing that i will say about that show to be critical of it i love working for nbc universal so i want to preface that with with that <laughs> but i found that the lid on the show for the period part was too tight there's an insane asylum episode where it's supposed to be, I think it was supposed to be set in the forties or the fifties. And I feel like the art department didn't get the opportunity to really sell the period. I know that the set decoration department is working really hard. You know, we were doing the best we could, but I think an, an audience who's looking for that period style element to the show, it didn't always get to sing because limitations of time and budget were really pressing in on that show, mostly by the end of it, because there's a lot of special effects. If you yeah. watch the show, there's a lot going on. And of course, all that costs money. And, you know, they're dealing with the shadow of the pandemic and they're also dealing with the strike. They went right into season two so there's actually a lot of episodes that are banked that'll probably come out in the united states this fall yeah it's one of the few shows which is most of the networks aren't doing scripted shows in the fall and that's one of the few ones that actually has the episodes done so it will be coming back yeah so. it's and i'm really glad i really like you said i really like that they took this reboot and they used its really clever devices and they've tweaked them i mean the relationship between him and his girlfriend is great. And the fact that he can time travel to any time, I like those changes. Yeah. And the other main difference on that from the original show is the fact that the original show didn't really show you anything outside of the point of view of Sam in whatever time period he was. You never saw the back office. You never saw what was going on back at Quantum Leap headquarters, apart from in very, very small occasions. So the fact that the whole of that team is now part of the story, I think is is a really nice way of differentiating it from the original as well so i worked on four of them i did a courtroom a battleship a oh maybe five of them a courtroom a battleship a plane and then there's one that sets you know is mostly set in the facility i guess yeah. four, i'm missing one anyway they were really fun to do because you know you're showing up to work one day and you're like oh i'm doing the 80s in the morning because we're opening the set but then we're prepping the 50s or the 40s in the meeting so that you know you're kind of constantly checking yourself on what timeline are we in and 
where is everyone? Because as anything, time travel wise, it it starts to unravel quickly yeah. if you don't keep on it. <laughs> yes. Keeping everything straight in your head must be yes, tricky. Uh, awesome. I shall let you go because we've been on for a while. So just the last couple of questions for you. And you've sort of answered this a little bit when we've been talking, actually. But I always ask the same two things. So first one is what TV shows are you watching at the moment? Oh, that's a great question because I have to tell you, I'm actually right now not watching any television. I have decided to start watching like committing to watching old movies. And I just finished watching every Oscar nominated movie from 1965. And then I jumped to 1975. So I've, I've watched quite a bit of movies in the last you know month. Awesome. The Hindenburg surprisingly is an incredible movie. It's a spy movie about the Zeppelin. Uh, I highly recommend that ship of fools, which was a 1965 movie. That is the, the amount of extras in it. In this couple scenes, is just <laughs> mind boggling. We've changed so much. So I've really, really enjoyed that. And then I'd never saw the sunshine boys with, Oh, I forgot the actors that are in it, but one of them's in grumpier old men. So to answer your question, I'm not watching TV. I'm watching old movies. Excellent. But that's that's a wonderful thing to do. I like that. And you sort of touched on this, I think, before, but um, if you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, something from the past, something from the present, or some sort of future genre, what would it be? And uh, well, I'll tell you what you said last time after you said this. I don't remember. Okay, after I say it. So I still have not done anything science fiction, and that doesn't mean space related. It could be Harry Potter related. It could be, uh, my gosh, to work on the Golden Compass series you know the the his dark material would have been a dream i loved love those books mm-hmm. fantastic books um so i've not done anything like that i'd like to do that but at this moment even a western would be exciting so something that just takes out some some world building uh i like contemporary but i'm excited to do something different yeah that sort of tallies with what you said last time because you said sort of something mythical supernatural something like harry potter game of thrones or a space comedy was the other thing you went for oh yes definitely i still have fantasies about i I have this pitch in my brain that I want to do a, a TV series about a space veterinarian. Uh, and that would be like my dream job at this moment. <laughs> that's a fantastic idea. You need to write that. That's brilliant. I would love to see that show. Okay, I'll get on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's superb. It's been lovely chatting with you again. Hopefully we'll, we'll catch up in the future at some point. Yeah, I love chatting with you too. I'm, thank you. Talk to you soon. Cheers.